Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 41, the one we've all been waiting for, The Matrix, from 1999. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us, we have back our religious expert, back from the Devil's Advocate, and here for a slew of Matrix episodes over the next month or two, John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. So this movie is kind of the reason we did Keanu Club. It's my favorite movie of all time. I kind of have the whole movie memorized. I was writing down quotes before they were said. I love this movie inside and out. I also do want to say Happy New Year to both of you and to our audience. This is the first Keanu Club of the new year. We are absolutely recording this in the new year. So this movie can be read in a bunch of different ways. The one I think that we're going to do most closely today because John is here, is the religion sort of Neo as Jesus. There's also the whole Neo as Alice in Wonderland. There's a whole lot of different ways, but what was interesting, I mean, I I obviously knew the parallels to him as Jesus, him as the Savior, him as the one that they've all been waiting for, but I, I watched last night with the intent or with the eye, with the ear of if Neo was literally Jesus and the people around him were sort of his disciples, and just hearing what they say. And I think that was kind of an interesting way to watch the movie, because there's certain things like just either complete disbelief or like a lack of belief, or like, that can't be... Po- like, it's, all, it's, it's all very interesting. We're going to get into all of that. But before we dive into the religion component, Mike, do you have anything... What do you want to get off your chest before we dive headfirst into these religious waters? I'm in the same boat as you are as far as you know, all-time favorite films ever. This is ever since I saw it right up there in top five. and maintains that spot and has for a long time. And just re-watching it now, it's been a good five or six years since I sat down and watched it in its entirety. And I was just amazed how much it holds up. I have like the same feelings and thoughts about it that I do now that I always have. And I'm also going to be showering praise upon it. You know, maybe where John comes in with more of the religious aspect, I'll try and maybe bring in some more of like the science fiction history behind some of what's going on in the Matrix. Ooh, I like that. Like, because we we mentioned in Johnny Mnemonic, you know, how we're going to be revisiting a lot of themes that were explored there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, without further ado, maybe we should just launch into it. This is going to sound obvious. Like, I've seen this movie probably 70 times, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, in its entirety. From start to finish, sat down, watched it in its entirety. I most recently saw it back in May, I think, or April, when the draft house down in Austin showed all the Wachowski movies. They showed all three Matrix movies on 35mm in a row, back-to-back. It was amazing. I also do want to point out that before this movie, the only movie that they had ever made was Bound from 1996, which is like a crime thriller, kind of noir, like a gay and lesbian movie. And so to go from that to this is astounding. Bound is great, and I really like Bound, but this movie, like if you're trying to track trajectories of filmmakers, going from Bound to this is mind-blowing. Yeah, well, they weren't going to do Bound first. They wanted to make The Matrix first, and they had made a film, and so the studio was like, do something else first, and then, you know, see if you could even make a film that's competent or, you know, can tell a story. And and so it's kind of a test film was Bound, and I feel like you can see a lot of, like, The Matrix, like the idea of 
setting up certain shots and being very concerned with camera placement and light like a lot of that is explored in that film too from like a technical standpoint so yeah they were asked to make a smaller film to make sure that they even knew how to direct a movie and that was made during like pre-production of the matrix oh okay 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 that makes more sense now that was sort of all like a preamble. Where I like to start, and I like to sort of talk to John about this, get him involved right away with the religious aspect of it, is I never realized, maybe never consciously thought about, when he is unplugged, when Neo is unplugged, when they find him and he touches the mirror and he gets enveloped in that like silvery goo, that's his baptism, right? Like that's like I, I thought of it as rebirth, obviously, but at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, I also don't know who's listening to this if you haven't seen The Matrix. Go see The Matrix. But at the end of the movie, when he dies and is reborn, that's like... Jesus being crucified, like I think that's more of a direct comparison. I never thought about physically getting pulled out of the battery fields as baptism, but that's kind of what it is, right? Yeah, well, there's two kind of baptism imagery moments. There's one within the Matrix and one without. So the being engulfed in silver thing is the sort of initial baptism, and then the legitimate baptism is when he falls into the water and then is raised up by the Nebuchadnezzar in that moment. So that's, yeah, I mean, when he comes out of the battery pod, he splashes into this huge pool of water. So he has both aspects of both the virtual Neo and the real Neo undergo baptisms, and both of them are sort of, you know, the moment of transition from a sort of a sleeping consciousness into a into an awoken one. But yeah, you're right. That's the, the silver stuff engulfing him is is meant to be baptist imagery for sure. So this movie is all kind of based on the Christian religion, right? I mean, well, no, no, sure... no, 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 no. Well, not no. entirely. <laughs> no. It... That's why you're here. That's why you're yeah. here. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I, let's be clear. This isn't Christianity. This is Gnostic Christianity. There's a, there's a difference. And uh, what is that difference? Okay, so a couple thousand years ago, in the early days of Christianity, there were differences of opinion. There were different schools of Christianity. The one that won out, we, we sometimes call it Pauline Christianity, because it's basically based on the, on the dogma that Paul set forth as he Christianized much of Europe. The other Christianities, we use the umbrella term Gnostic to describe them. And Gnostic Christianity basically was a group of people who believed the purpose that Jesus was serving on earth was to tell us about the true nature of reality beyond the reality that we see. That Jesus was a means of us to understand the underlying reality of the universe, and that was where our salvation was coming from. Gnostics also believed, and this was one of the big dividing lines between Gnostics and what became what we now know as Christianity, that Jesus was not physically real. So that the the Jesus that was experienced by his disciples was uh, sort of a phantom projection of God. They interacted with him but when he died on the cross, it wasn't a real death because he was never really man. Modern Christianity believes that Jesus was both fully man and fully human. That's one of the, the major tenets of the Christianity that survived through the Catholic Church. But Gnostics believed that he wasn't real. In fact, the reason that Christmas is celebrated, Christmas is a dogmatically unimportant holiday in Christianity. The, the birth of Jesus is only mentioned in two of the Gospels. It's, it's not, it doesn't serve any real spiritual function. But the reason that... Right, Easter is a much bigger deal. Yeah, and so the reason that the church even put in a nativity day was to establish once and for all that Jesus was real, that he was born. Because Jesus can't have been a projection if he had a physical birth on earth, right? <laughs> okay, no, that's, okay. that's true. No, so, it so makes that, sense. It makes sense. So that, right. So it was, it was to settle that argument and sort of put the nail in the Gnostic idea once and for all. But we, we have a lot of Gnostic gospels. They still exist. They weren't included in the Bible, but there's dozens of Gnostic gospels that tell a very different kind of story about who Jesus was. One of the themes of 
Gnostic Christianity is that the God of the Old Testament is not the true God. That It's a deceiver God. That God created a fake world and has imprisoned us for millennia. And Jesus came to tell us the real nature of God, not that corrupt, you know, sort of lunatic God from the Old Testament. So they parted ways with modern Christianity as well in saying that that God isn't our God. The God of Moses is not our God. The true God is is something else entirely. And in order to fully understand who that God is, we need Jesus as a catalyst. So Yes, I mean, a lot of the same things, baptism, the the idea of a savior, a lot of the same ideas that we associate with modern Christianity are also true of the Gnostics, but Gnostic Christianity is a different beast, and the the matrix where it borrows from Christianity borrows specifically from Gnostic Christianity and not contemporary Christianity. Okay. But it also, I mean, it's it's not just Christianity. Like, there's tons of Buddhism and Taoism and, and Zen all over the place in the matrix. You can certainly draw a line through the matrix through the Gnostic Gospels, but you could also just completely skip, ignore the Gnostic Gospels and read it entirely differently and read it as a, uh, a Taoist story or a Zen story or a Buddhist story or even a Hindu. There's a lot of Hinduism in there as well. So they, they really do just take a whole bunch of religions, throw them in a blender, and the Matrix is the result of it. And what's also kind of great is that there's also scenes where Keanu says guns, lots of guns, and then lots of guns show up. So like, <laughs> right. even if you're not into the religion or spirituality or <laughs> philosophical components of it, it's it's like accessible spirituality. Right. That if you want to read it like that, and the way that we're sort of diving into it today, at least you know, at least for now, you can. But if you also just want to see beautiful people in leather going around shooting other bad guys, or that's also this movie, and that's why it's <laughs> sure. great. I've never really loved The Matrix. I, I can talk about that later. I do love a lot about it. One of the things I do love about it is that it's not superficial in the way it understands religion. The Wachowskis clearly knew what they were talking about. They clearly had studied Gnosticism. They clearly have a good understanding of Eastern philosophy. This isn't, you know, like sort of top-level stuff they're doing here. And when I say that they take all that stuff and throw it into a blender, what's cool about it is that once it's thrown into the blender, the result that comes out in the end works. And they understand the, the mechanics of religion enough that they've managed to make something here that borrows from elements of all these different religions, but works in its own kind of religious narrative. So they're able to kind of isolate and identify the elements of religion that are consistent sort of throughout time and throughout geography and bring them into a new context that still works and still sort of says something interesting about um, our relationship to reality and our uncertainty about our own relationship to reality and, and all that sort of stuff that's been a sort of central religious theme for a long time. It's not, you know, I don't want to be, make it sound like I was being kind of dismissive when I say they throw it in a blender. The blender is is incredibly well built, right? And the movie at the end of it is very precisely put together. Yeah, and I also feel that it's not just religion that they have a grasp of and are able to wield at their will, but also just general knowledge of storytelling. Like, The Matrix isn't anything especially new, per se, you know? Like, on its surface, right? Like, it's very much the hero's journey, and, you know, it's all in that the presentation, yep. Yep. you know? But <laughs> yeah. they, they just have such a great hand and understanding of you know everything from religion, philosophy, science fiction, action, filmmaking. Their their understanding of the language of arts is is profound in a way that they are able to take all of that, like you say, like all these different sources, put them together, and make sense of it in a new way, or at least in a way that they can present it to a new audience, an audience that has a shorter attention span, <laughs> and you know, an audience that isn't going to seek out questions in their movies like this. But the Wachowskis are going to sort of veil it all here in the Matrix 
with a standard action film that's also very awesome to watch and top-notch in its genre as well. And I feel like they lure you in with this one and then really lecture you hardcore in the next two. Um, (laughs) Much more to their point. I I actually like the lecture in the second one the best. (laughs) As as someone who studied religion and philosophy, the first one felt very superficial to me. Like, I've I've been there, done that, right? Like, I've kind of seen all this before. It's like philosophy 101. It is philosophy 101. And the more that I've watched it over the years and the more layers that I've seen to it, the more I've I've come to appreciate it, especially as as a teaching tool. But to Mike's point, I think that's a really, really good one. One of the things when it came out in 99 that I think why it was such a phenomenon is is because it was quote-unquote so original. And Mike is right to say that there's not an original bone in its body. There's nothing original about it. It's like pretty, you know, it borrows aesthetically from so much cyberpunk. Uh, there's so many sort of sci-fi philosophy ideas that have long been discussed. It, you know, it's talking about philosophies that are hundreds if not thousands of years old. It's, it's an action movie. It's fairly straightforward. It's a hero's journey narrative. It's so not original, but well, the the one original thing before you finish your point is the they did invent all like the like the bullet time and stuff like oh, that's please. for this movie. Please, let's the not even techni- talk about that. No, that's 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 BS. But but okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> no, we'll, I'll come back to that. But it's much like Star Wars in that it's the presentation of it, right? It's in other words, it, when all that stuff's thrown into a blender, what you get at the end feels very original, right? Star Wars is also incredibly unoriginal. It's based on so the much stuff fortress, that right? came I before think... it and myth going back thousands of years yeah, like and King westerns Arthur, and like yeah, yeah. yeah King Arthur Greek mythology the bible it, like it's all just sort of thrown in there with lightsabers and this is all that stuff thrown in with bullet time but it's it's what is presented that I do think when it came out you know it was unlike anything anybody had seen before in the same way that Star Wars was in 1977 even though it necessarily wasn't a new story or a new idea it was this very kind of edgy and knowing presentation very confident presentation of these ideas which i think is also why it lasts so well over time because again mike's right i watch it every year and i it doesn't feel old it doesn't feel like it's 17 years old it still holds up incredibly well so a couple things i feel like when you talk like i just have so many things that i want to say but you get on such a roll i'm like i can't interrupt them but <laughs> like, i keep like <laughs> keep like making notes and everything so number one back when i saw it in may the guy introduced the movie and he was like i know that you've all seen this movie before but try to put yourselves in the shoes of someone in 99 and try to see this movie like you've never seen it before if you've never seen this movie before you're thrown into this world where there's just a woman who is apparently like intimidating to the point where these very professional looking guys in suits are worried about the safety of like a couple cops and then she's able to like jump in the air and kind of freeze time and just like kick their asses and jump across a street if you're just trying to figure out what's going on it's like i don't know how to process this like it's amazing if you think that the matrix is kind of old hat or you're like i've seen that before i don't need to see it again really genuinely try to go back and like put yourselves in the shoes of like you don't know what's going on you don't know that this is trinity you don't know that she's looking for neo you don't know that he's going to fight agents and saving morpheus and all this different stuff just try to like absorb it like you've never seen it before and it's mind-blowing uh, to that type point real quick my students now were all born after it came out and God, uh, <laughs> i know <laughs> i so i get to watch it that way every time which is really cool and and i and i do think that is part of the appeal for me that i'm i'm kind of watching it through their eyes and and they don't feel like it's old and they, you know it feels very kind of fresh and, and cool to them as well so i think that that validates what you're saying 
I remember when this came out in 99 and going to see it at the sort of end of its run, not even really being psyched for it because the advertising was basically just what is the Matrix? And I wasn't that <laughs> intrigued, to be quite honest with you, because all I really knew about this movie was it was about hackers and computer hackers hadn't really had a, you know, really good run at the movies recently no. and stuff. So yeah, I, when I went and sat down in it, I just instantly thought it was a superhero movie you know when she starts running around and jumping over <laughs> buildings and things but it's kind of funny how i think of it now that i was resisting the movie at the beginning and then by the end i remember just being completely won over by it realizing it was not what i was expecting whatsoever in a way i feel like they pulled like a bait and switch where they got me into the theaters with sort of the action aspects and then i left there you know full of these thoughts and ideas of it and that really was kind of rare back then because even aesthetically there wasn't anybody running around in black leather jackets with guns doing kung fu except for Wesley Snipes in Blade which was you know <laughs> rough, roughly a year earlier but that was like pretty much the first guy and then after the Matrix crew you know everybody was in black spandex yeah we get your girl fu. Kate Beckinsale in the Underworld series right that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's at right. the least at the very least that's what we have out of it another follow-up to John's thing about how this is not original and Star Wars is not original there was a four-part I think it was four-part web series documentary series a couple years ago called Everything is a Remix, and they go through and about how, essentially at this point in man's history, like and like we've been this way for a while, there's no new stories. Like, all the stories have mm-hmm. been told. Yeah. And <laughs> there really only are probably, realistically, a handful of stories you can tell. Like, maybe yeah. 15 different stories, and that's it. Yep. And they do a really good job of, like, going through and showing how, like, exactly like John was saying, that nothing is truly original. It's really how you put things together. And then they put, after, after he did the series, and the series is really great. I hope it's still online. I would imagine Imagine it's still online. It's called Everything is a Remix. After it was all done, he did an entire sort of standalone episode about Tarantino. And, you know, we've talked about Tarantino on a bunch of other things on the Cage Club Podcast Network. We've never done one of his movies. I think we might do something with him down the road. Who knows? But... I mean, his whole thing, like, none of his stuff's original, too, but he embraces that. And, like, you know, love him or hate him, what he does, like, he creates these worlds and he creates these things where he literally is, like, stealing scenes. Like, Kill Bill, if you, like, if you, like anything you remember from Kill Bill that's unique or visually stunning, he just ripped from another thing. And he just put them all together, and it's sort of like, he's kind of like a DJ, and, like, he's sequencing a story and just taking his favorite things and like things you might have seen before like if you've seen every martial arts movie or every samurai movie you've probably seen a lot of kill bill already but the way that he lays them all together he creates this story much like the way that the wachowskis here or george lucas the way that they lay everything together and it's the final product like each individual piece maybe wasn't them but you know nothing's ever really anybody's really because if you're if you're trying to describe a new movie like at its essence you'd be like well it's this plus this because nothing nothing's ever a original anymore it's just a matter of how we tell a story yeah i think the trick of that can be you can get something like the matrix where no it's not original and yeah it's it's imitation in this but like people who understand what they're doing and they've taken things that existed and crafted something new out of it and then you get the people who just saw the matrix and make their thing like that you know so i feel like there's more than one school there's like a right way to do that and like a wrong way to do that in a way but it is kind of interesting how every so often every like decade or so there is like this benchmark film that will take the art of storytelling and rearrange it and represent it in in a new way for the audience and 
The other thing that I wanted to say, and maybe this can sort of kickstart, like, I don't know how much we actually want to talk about this right now, but you guys mentioned The Hero's Journey, and I think that this movie works as a standalone with The Hero's Journey, but I think, especially as we get into Reloaded and Revolutions and the Animatrix and Enter the Matrix and everything we're doing over the next two months, The Hero's Journey works as a better, bigger picture with all three movies. And what's also kind of interesting, Jupiter Ascending, the Wachowski's newest movie, which came out a couple years ago, that was pretty much across the board hated by critics and fans, but upon second viewing, I genuinely, wholeheartedly love it. That's, in essence, kind of the Matrix, but kind of gender-swapped the Matrix, where Mila Kunis is basically Neo. And it's a little frustrating thinking about like the comparisons that in that movie she's so helpless, but also in this movie, I was thinking, Keanu's kind of helpless until he finally decides to go save Morpheus. I think we think of him as this really admirable action star, this guy that we all want to be. But really, like, what does he do? He got a terrible, terrible job. He gets arrested. He gets bugged. He gets, you know, humiliated. Kind of, not, like, not really humiliated, but, you know, they, they force him to take up his shirt when they take the bug out. You know, he goes and he gets kind of embarrassed by all these people who like know the secrets of this world and he doesn't know them and then he's reborn as a literal baby essentially and you know he's powerless until the like hour 30 mark and so Mila Kunis isn't necessarily a great female role model in Jupiter sending for much of it but like Keanu's not really like a great powerful character here either until he takes the world into his own hands again this is much closer to the Buddha trajectory than the Christ trajectory in this particular narrative. I agree with you that it works both as a standalone hero's journey and a three-part hero's journey, as does Star Wars. If you look at A New Hope through Return of the Jedi, it works as a hero's journey. Star Wars itself also works as a hero's journey. And I, I think that's part of the new way of building these trilogies, or it might be something that the Wachowskis deliberately borrowed from Star Wars. But what you're talking about, and you're absolutely right, Neo is basically useless until his resurrection, or until his kind of moment of enlightenment, which is which is very similar to Siddhartha. The Siddhartha is born into essentially a, a prison of, of perfection, a, a false world that is deliberately trying to hide the reality of the world from him. He wakes up into that reality. He then becomes a very sort of lost and scared individual. He looks for teachers to show him the way. They keep kind of leading him astray. You know, he doesn't really come into his own until he has the moment where he just kind of sits down and says, okay, I'm going to come into my own. Um, I'm <laughs> Well, Siddhartha defeats Mara, right, in the same way, who's, who's the god of temptation, in the same way that Neo defeats the Agent Smith, who is also the god of temptation. We see that when he tempts Cypher into, into going back into the Matrix. His whole trick is to say, look, this is better, come back here, right? Even though it's not true, and, and Neo chooses truth. So, so that trajectory and, and him becoming a, a powerful character, his, his power comes from his awakening, in the same way that Siddhartha's power came from, from his awakening. But you can say the same thing, too, about sort of the early narrative of, of Jesus, especially in the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels have a lot about Jesus' childhood, and he's, and he's a very kind of conflicted child. He's, he's kind of a bully sometimes. He's, he's very kind of unsure about his role in the world and how 
how to make that work. And then he finally has a sort of moment of clarity following his baptism. And then up until the time that he enters into Jerusalem and sort of takes matters into his own hands. So the idea of a kind of a godlike figure or or a savior-like figure having intense periods of weakness and fallibility is is another one of those kind of deeper level kind of religious themes that we don't always associate with the hero's journey quite as much, but we definitely see it here. I think another way that actually works too is like Neo being such a blank slate is that he's the audience conduit, you know, like he almost Yeah, the hero always be... is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I think it especially works well in this film, though, because of what needs to be explained to him, like the, the <laughs> sort of the level of craziness that is actually going on. And then, you know, when he does finally act, he's so amazing and it's so awesome. And it's like such good stuff to watch that like we're totally engrossed and on board and behind him. And at that point, we have sort of projected ourselves onto him and we feel like we're the ones kind of saving the day here or out to be the one. Yeah, it's interesting. The the blank slate conduit thing is is also it's another one of those kind of hero's journey motifs. I wrote a piece a long time ago about why Harry Potter is, is everybody's least favorite Harry Potter character. Like nobody says my favorite Harry Potter character is Harry Potter because Harry Potter is you. You know, he's your subconscious. He he's the he's the person that you're experiencing the story through. And so he can't have that much personality or else you move away from the story, right? The main character has to have in these mythological constructions has to have kind of as little characteristics as possible because they have to appeal to everybody. You have to be able to see yourself in them. So it can't be a Ron Weasley character who's a very defined kind of personality. That might be your favorite character, but he's not everybody's favorite character because there's things about him that annoy some people, right? You can't have your hero be be like that. So it's got to be like a Neo or a Harry Potter or a Luke Skywalker, someone who is just kind of just sort of dull, but dull in the same way that we kind of don't so. think about ourselves too much because we're more concerned about the people around us than ourselves. That's our way in. So yeah, it's a good observation. I, I think that's that's completely right. Should we try to go through this like somewhat chronologically and see if we could pick off the religion bits piece by piece. So I guess the first thing, it's its sort of the first awakening, like it's a literal awakening for Neo. And John was saying before about how it's an awakening, but he's at his computer hunting for Morpheus, trying to figure out who Morpheus is or what Morpheus is. And the text starts typing him, whether that's Trinity or that was, I mean, that was Trinity. We found out it's Trinity, but he, you know, he, he doesn't know that at the time and he gets a knock on the door and which by the way, that woman who plays DuJour is this woman, Ada Nicodemou. I don't know. She's Australian. Anyway, after this, she's been in 1,400 episodes of this soap opera called Home and Away, oh, which has had 7,000 sure. episodes. Yeah. So she's like a star of that. And she's got one line in this. Anyway, anyway, anyway. <laughs> I wondered if um, these people, are they agents of Zion? Like, are these guys, were they unplugged and then, be, because they look more like, I mean, we find out they go to the bondage bar, but they already look like they yeah. know what's going on, right? Like, they look like they are sort I, of I don't think Trinity. so. I think, I think they're Neo, they're, they're kind of Neo before he is contacted by Trinity. I think, I think the idea is that basically there's like hackers who think that they're doing things that are meaningful, but they're not, right? And that, and, mm. and so I think that's kind of that who that culture is. Okay, so they, yeah. still, they still exist okay. within the Matrix, but they feel like they're fighting the system, but they have no idea what the system is. Like, they're, they're blind to, to what, what really is happening. Yeah, and that I, was just something I thought of this viewing. I, I didn't always think of that, but I'm sort of pulling for new meaning out of stuff this <laughs> I also think it's one of several things in the Matrix that you're supposed to not overthink, because, like, there's some things that are just logically just do not work at all. I can bring some of those up later. I think that's let's, kind of one of them. Let's not. Let's not ruin the movie. <laughs> 
No, there's there's a couple things. I, sure. Like, before I get into that, though, so so those first words wake up. So I, we probably talked about this when we talked about little Buddha, but the word Buddha means awakened or the one who woke up. So that choice of words is not a coincidence, and that you see him physically wake up during that scene, and then several times afterwards as well, when he wakes up from the club, and then when he wakes up from the smith putting the, the plant in him. That's a that's an obvious and deliberate nod to the to the Buddha story. What I also like about Choi's character, though, is that it's the first, I mean, it's it's a joke, it's played off as a joke, but it's the first overt reference to religion. He says, hallelujah, man, you're my savior, you're my own personal Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You're my savior, man. My own personal Jesus Christ. You get caught using that. Yeah, I know, this never happened. You don't exist. Right. Something wrong, man? You look a little whiter than usual. My computer, it... You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Mm, all the time. It's called mescaline. It's the only way to fly. Hey, look, it just sounds to me like, you know, you need to unplug, man. You know, get some R&R? &R? Hey, what do you think, sure? Should we take him with us? Like, he's going to be a lot of people's Jesus Christ. Really, you know, we see in the second movie that there's that kid he saved, and we get him from Kid Story in the Animatrix, which we're going to get to. But he is this guy who basically unplugs everybody who is, or in, in some sense, unplugs everybody and saves them from this computer world. And so it's a joke here that, oh, he got him these government codes or whatever he got him, I don't remember. I'm actually sort of stunned at how little I remember. I thought I'd be able to, like, recall everything to the letter, but, but you know, he gets him whatever this is, and it's just like, oh, like, you know, you made my day, you're a hero. You know, obviously it's there for a reason, just like, hey, this guy's going to be a lot of people's Jesus. Just buckle up, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. There's a lot of good foreshadowing. I mean, the script is really tight for as much as they want to convey. He also tells Neo he needs to unplug. You know, he's like, he says it just in jest. He's like, you should unplug and get out. And, you know, you, you look pale. Later in the car, Switch is going to refer to him as Copper Top. And that's sort of slang for Duracell batteries. And then he'll come to learn that he was a battery. And so, like, yeah, it's it's really from the start. They know what they want to say. And they have a very clear idea of how to do that. Yeah, they do. And, and I, again, this is what I was saying before. They clearly did their homework. They know what they're talking about. It is, in terms of the way that it's structured, I, I think it's pretty solid. It's... Uh, it's tight. I, I would disagree that I think it's. I don't think it's well written. I think that a lot of the dialogue is absolutely painful, and that if it were a lesser of a movie, we'd probably notice that more. Um, <laughs> I also think it has a lot of very, very good performances that from probably underrated actors who are able to circumvent the fact that the dialogue is is pretty dreadful. Like I don't think dance. that Wachowskis are great writers. I think they they are very good at crafting this kind of you know these crazy narratives and stories in a way that you don't notice so much that they're not the greatest. They're not you know. Tom Stoppard. Yeah, they do. Every character does get over preachy. Like, right. I will give it that. Like, that is its problem. Right. Everyone speaks and uh, everything they say is absolutely serious. And right. they've been <laughs> right. thinking about it forever. You right. know, no one is just kind of shooting the shit except for maybe Mouse. You know, <laughs> like, every, and even he has to end his sentence with to deny ourselves pleasures, to deny us what makes us, you know, humans. Like, even he can't <laughs> stop himself. Oh, and by the way, giving, Mouse, you know, I, 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 I found this out in an IMDb search, is the guy who tries to sell Obi-Wan Kenobi death sticks in Star Wars Episode Two? Oh, really? Um, yeah, how about that? What, what a <laughs> hero's like journey for that guy. <laughs> 
That's his other, like, big role. <laughs> I think it's, like, one of the things he's known for, you know? Like, the three movies that you're known for on IMDb. Sure. Uh, I think one of them is Star Wars Episode Two, playing Alien Sleaze Bagano. While um, we're on the topic of Mouse, because I don't think we're going to get back to Mouse, no. I do like that in this era we're living in of Westworld, and now Westworld's over by the time you're listening to this, uh, at least the first season, I like that, you know, he's basically saying, like, hey, if you want to re-enter the Matrix, like, you can have sex with a woman in red. Like, that's totally cool. And I like that all of Westworld is just like, you know, if you want to go bang these, you know, robot hosts, go for it. It's the same kind of thing just 17 years earlier, which is kind of funny. Yeah, I think the difference is Westworld isn't like a mandated thing for everybody that they have to <laughs> live there under robot control. But I hear what you're saying. Like, it is kind of, I love that aspect of the real world from someone who's been unplugged is that they now can use all this robot tech in them to access computer programs for themselves you know like write their own sex programs or their training programs and things like that like those are some of the coolest ways that they express their ideas in this movie you know this the fusion of technology and thought is really well done in this film yeah well they become essentially demigods i think this is the most kind of overt reference to hindu theology in that in in hinduism there's sort of these different levels of reality and these different levels of being and the gods that we know of in Hinduism are are not gods in the in the way that we kind of think about them in in Western religion. They are beings who exist within the truer reality beyond the one that we experience. So our reality is called samsara, and samsara is this sort of prison of a reality that we are stuck into. When we die, we're reborn into it. We keep being reborn into it until we choose to sort of escape from samsara, which requires you know, a great deal of discipline and study and knowledge and, and all this other stuff. So, you know, outside of the realm of samsara, we have these different gods, and, and they are able to essentially do exactly what you're saying, which is that they can enter into our reality and, and screw around with it and tinker with it. So the way that Hindu cosmology and theology works is hu- human beings are stuck in samsara. Samsara is the, well, this is true in Buddhism as well, but it's the prison of existence that we live in. So this world isn't really like the really, really real world. It's, it's an illusionary world. It's made up of something called Maya. Maya is very similar in terms of the way it's described to the coding of the matrix. So we experience this world. It is it is illusory. Uh, so it's like, it's real to us, but it's not the really real world. And, and the really real world outside of samsara is where the the quote-unquote gods live so the the hindu gods are more like demigods they're more like sort of very powerful beings they are themselves the product of a higher god called the godhead uh, or brahma which is a god that can't be described or really truly understood so you can kind of think of the the goal of hinduism ultimately is to you, you grow tired of living within this reality prison you try to achieve escape from it that's called moksha achieving moksha the breaking of samsara is exactly like leaving the matrix like unplugging it requires a great deal of study and discipline and prayer and devotion and all that stuff you have to sort of escalate the rungs of reality and of of human experience but the hindu gods uh, function very similarly to the people that have been unplugged from the matrix and which is that they in other words can as as mike was kind of talking about they can play with our world and when they play with our world when they go into the world and interact with us the way that you know neo and morpheus and so on do in the matrix they're called avatars so the word avatar comes from the idea of a hindu god who takes the form a sort of artificial form of a human-like entity in order to play around in our world and influence it in some way so that idea is directly uh, as a direct reference to hindu cosmology so so you can actually you actually should think of the freed human beings as elevated above normal humanity because they are able to do more than normal humans are. They can go into the Matrix, they can also live outside of the Matrix, they can, as Mike says, kind of 
create and influence things in the way, almost like a godlike way, by creating something like the woman in the red dress. You know, he Mouse is a god <laughs> in a sense because he created a full a full human being. Yeah. Okay, so I, just... I know we want to move on. I actually have a follow up to that, if possible. Go, go. So, so my one question that might relate to what you just said there is: when they do get unplugged from the Matrix, the real world—it's a wasteland. It's you know, it's been decimated and destroyed. Can you read into that from any religious text that once you emerge from this lie, that the actual world? isn't paradise at all but in fact it's sort of like this hell that you have to live in yeah are you supposed to be like happier just because you're in the truth even though the truth is worse than the fiction that's a really really good question i i don't think that that is that that specifically the sort of post-apocalyptic nature of the world outside of the matrix is necessarily something that we see in a specific religion i'll say a couple things one that the Buddhist concept of escaping from samsara, which is called nirvana, it's different from from moksha. Hindus call it moksha, Buddhists call it nirvana. Nirvana is the idea that escaping from samsara is nothingness. It's not really described as anything. It's not bliss. It's not. It's not eternal happiness. It is the ending of the suffering of the false reality that you live in. I think there's two ways of looking at it. One, you can kind of look at the post-apocalyptic world as not so much the afterlife or sort of a, a metaphysical world, but the world of suffering that Siddhartha chose to go into because the world that was created for him in the palace was artificial. So that he chose a world of less comfort and less happiness for, and this is, I think, the crucial point here, for freedom. And that if you really, if you really look at a lot of or even most religions, one of the things that I think people tend to overlook about the kind of common theme of religion is that the value and the virtue that it most, almost all religion most values or places highest is freedom. Uh, It's not bliss. It's not uh, eternal life. It's freedom. It's this idea that you have been deceived and lied to, and that once you know the truth, that, you know, the truth will set you free, as it says in the Bible. So real real quick, then that directly (coughs) contrasts with Cypher, because he says ignorance is bliss, and so he's looking for, he's he's looking for the opposite of freedom. Right, so he's, he's, he's a Judas Iscariot character. Judas, who is a disciple of Jesus's, decides to betray Jesus because he basically thinks that he's just better off living under the, the rule of Rome and the Jewish ruling elite because it's more comfortable. It's just easier. Money is a simpler way of doing things than the, the, the challenge of knowing the truth and living a, a life of spiritual purity and truth. It's it's interesting that it is this barren wasteland. At the same time, and I think this becomes more apparent in Reloader and Revolutions, there's there's also a, a sort of celebration of humanity, right? There's something about the real like flesh and blood humanity that is that is clearly beneficial or, or clearly preferable to the sort of static nature of, of the matrix or like the uh, the artificial nature of the matrix. So I don't think it's necessarily like that. It's all like Zion seems like a pretty cool place if you're into raves. I guess, right? But I don't think it's all it's all so bleak. It just is the you know, the idea that you should value freedom above all else. I, I mean in fact this is this is why this is how Christianity and Judaism explain why God doesn't just come out of the clouds and be like, here I am, right? D- debate over, right? And it's because if God did that, then you would not have the freedom to choose to believe in God, right? So because God values your freedom so much, God has made it up to you to decide whether or not to believe in God. And if he told you that he existed, he'd take that away. So quite literally, where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. That's right, look yeah. That. Look at that. I also like that they didn't just throw in a post-apocalyptic wasteland for the hell of it, that there's actual sort right, of, right, you know, right, right, there's yep. point to it, too. 
one thing you brought up, well, you brought up Zion, and Zion is obviously referenced in the Bible as the Mount Zion. There's also another very blatant biblical allusion, I guess, is Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe is known as the destroyer of nations. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king who was the first to invade and destroy the first temple of Jerusalem. So the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed twice. The Babylonians destroyed the temple under Nebuchadnezzar first, which led to what was called the Diaspora. And the Diaspora was a period of time when the Israelites were unable to return to their homeland, which was the most important time in the development of Judaism as a religion rather than just a kind of cultural identity. So the Nebuchadnezzar reference is a reference to the banishment from the home, right? Zion, or you can just think of like earth as it was, is, you know, sort of the allusion to the Jewish temple and Jerusalem itself and the Jews being banished from it. So the Jews are banished. The second temple was built hundreds of years later and was was destroyed by the Romans, and now there is no Jewish temple. But what's important to understand about that in terms of theology is that up until the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian invasion and the exile from Jerusalem, Jews believed that the only place that you could worship God was at the temple. So the temple itself, because they believed the Spirit of God lived inside the temple, the temple itself was absolutely pivotal. In other words, there was no, like the religion didn't make any sense without it. So the exile was a time when they were sort of on the run and homeless and split apart from each other that we call diaspora, where they had to really like figure out a new way forward to sort of scrap together a way to survive and uh, eventually resettle a new homeland. So yes, you're right in picking up that that is a direct reference to a much bigger story that most people would, would just be like, oh, a cool name for a ship. And people like me are like, aha, right, I get exactly what you're trying to say here, and again, you've clearly done your homework. Well, I mean, that's uh, the whole thing in the movie, that's what we were saying earlier, like, if you want to just say, like, hey, cool name for a ship, cool, like, you're gonna enjoy this movie, or if you want to go deep, and, like, I was saying to Mike, he said he watched a behind-the-scenes thing, I know that on some versions of the DVD, I'm assuming it's also on the Blu-ray, there are commentaries by philosophers who like the movie, by critics who don't like the movie, I own a couple books that are about the Matrix and philosophy. Like, if you want to get deep with this, even if you don't have anybody to talk to, like, there are places out there that you can just read and read and read and listen, and it's really a well that's as deep as you want it to be. If you just want to go surface level, you want to be like, hey, cool guys shooting guns, like, all right. Or if you want to go real deep and, like, analyze everything to a much greater extent than we're going to be doing here today, you can do that too, which I think is just, again, why it's so great. So if we go back to the club and a Keanu nection where, Mike, I think we're talking really, uh, nightclubs in so many Keanu movies. He's in clubs in so many movies. But this is what's interesting to me, is that if you're thinking about him as Jesus and Trinity sort of as a disciple... They're watching you, Leo. Who is? He's just listening. I know why you're here, Neo. I know what you've been doing. I know why you hardly sleep, why you live alone, and why night after night you sit at your computer. You're looking for him. You know, because I was once looking for the same thing. And when he found me, he told me I wasn't really looking for him. I was looking for an answer. It's the question that drives us here. It's the question that brought you here. You know the question, just as I did. What is the matrix? The answer is out there, Nina. It's looking for you. And it will find you if you want it to. 
And this is really, I guess, in terms of the chronology, before the baptism, but she also sort of sees, like, we know you're special. There's going to be people out there who doubt you or who want to kill you, and I'm just worried for you. Like, So that kind of, looking at that scene like that, and also keeping in mind that he has no idea what the hell is going on, that he's heard of Trinity, but has no idea of her role or her connection to Morpheus or how important in his life she's going to be, that's kind of scary but also kind of awesome yeah and that his name at that point is still thomas is doubting thomas right right Uh, and again that's also biblical so that whole sort of period of time which is surrounded by doubt and it's surrounded by doubt up until he goes into the white space and and eventually throws up in the real world and and that's when the doubt starts to fade but ideas of doubt even of those around him doubting him are sort of super prevalent in the beginning and then diminish over time in everybody until the point where he he clearly presents himself as as the true messiah so i have a question for you in terms of the bible specifically yeah you mentioned before his birth is only in two of the four gospels from what i remember most of what's in the bible is just about like the few years right before his death right is there stuff in the bible of him as like an aimless teenager sort of the phase that keanu's in <laughs> right. at this point or do we just like fast forward over all of that there's not in the four canonical gospels in the bible no the four canonical gospels two of them talk about jesus being born and then they skip ahead to when he's 32 or in his early early 30s two of them start right there in in his adulthood the two that talk about his birth don't even tell the same story about his birth the christmas story that we have is sort of a mishmash of both of them sort of thrown into into one story it's very confusing and it's kind of irrelevant but the answer to your question is no the four canonical gospels in the bible do not tell that story but the gnostic gospels do there are lots of gnostic gospels that talk about jesus's youth and the years leading up to what we call his mission which is the time that he meets john the baptist is baptized and begins as jesus as we know him so a lot of that sort of coming of age stuff is in the what are called the gnostic gospels we know that some of them existed. We don't have them. We, we only have about a dozen or so now. There are probably 30-something of them. We have references to them in history, but they've been lost to history. But So we have some, and we can guess what other ones say. But a lot of the Gnostic Gospels tell very, very different stories about who Jesus was and what his nature was. And again, a lot of them say that he was basically just a phantom, an avatar, and a lot of them talk about you know that elevation into someone who doubted his role in the world, and then eventually came into himself. So hold on, I have a, I have a question for you then. This might be an obvious question that sounds dumb. So in The Matrix, Neo is looking for Morpheus. Neo is not really looking for him, Trinity says, but she's looking, they're looking for an answer. They're looking for, like, what is The Matrix? In the Gnostic Gospels, did Jesus always know that he was supposed to save mankind, or was he sort of, like, trying to figure out what his role was in life? Depends on which gospel you're talking about. The Gnostics, I think, in general, seem to understand that, that Jesus was always that he kind of well okay so so, yeah when he was young he didn't seem to know who he was and then upon kids are gonna be kids right and then upon baptism going forward he has this and a lot of the gnostic gospels is very clear almost uh it's almost like a i can't think of like a good parallel to it It, it, it's he's almost this demigod mentality to him like he he's so above his disciples like he he's so aware of who he is that he says these really like cryptic things to his disciples and like he will appear to them as like a child literally as a child in some of them and he he can like shapeshift and and that sort of stuff so again yeah this tracks pretty well with the matrix like once neo embraces and understands his role he then becomes so much more than everybody else around him but the, the the canonical gospels seem to suggest that he always knew 
So what we now know as Christianity, the doctrine basically is he was born to a virgin. He found out very young who he was. He never questioned it basically going forward. And the rest is history. So the idea of, of an evolution, the evolution is starker in the Gnostic Gospels. In other words, like where he starts and where he ends up is much broader. He's much more powerful to the Gnostics. But the idea of fallibility, that there was a time in his life when he wasn't perfect, is also present in the Gnostics in a way that it's not elsewhere. But was he ever like fully in the dark? Not in the dark, but like, I'm trying to think, like, is there a comparison either to that or to any religion where maybe in this part he's not necessarily compared to Jesus, but just trying to like someone wandering around aimlessly before he actually just finds religion in general, because he's looking for something. He's looking for an answer. And that answer, you know, he, he finds out that he is the one, but also in like a more simple sense, he basically finds religion. He finds Christianity. He finds like, hey, there's this higher calling. This is what I want to do with my life. Yeah, and I think in that sense, it's much more, we turn much more to the Eastern philosophers and figures who are referenced in this movie, like Confucius and Siddhartha and Lao Tzu, who are people that kind of, from an early age, took it on into their own hands to have a spiritual awakening of some kind. And it was kind of always there in the background, and, and they... they deliberately pursued it. So I think in terms of like the, you know, especially we see that with Siddhartha that he just literally says, okay, I'm leaving this all behind and I'm going to go find the answer and doesn't find it for a very, very long time, but it eventually does. So I think that's one of those places where it's, you know, that trajectory is more obvious in Eastern philosophy than it is in an Eastern religion than it is in Christianity. What's kind of interesting is that Neo denies them that he's the one you know he's like yeah she told me i'm not the one and i believe that i'm not the one but it's only then is he able to realize his potential and put his life in front of others and do the ultimate sacrifice and then it's not until then that he has his true awakening at the end and with the help of trinity too which i thought was interesting is that he doesn't end up doing it alone it's like the combination of him and trinity's love is (laughs) it's kind of got like a fifth element thrown in their vibe where love is the ultimate power like the extrasensory ability that will bind us metaphysically through the universe together so i thought that was kind of interesting too is like yeah he he can't do it alone like it takes the whole team like everybody not that they're all equally important or maybe to a degree but that they need each other to accomplish this that he can't do it alone yeah and what you're saying there is the element where it really does veer away from christianity and where we see a lot more um well two things we see we see taoism and we see zoroastrianism so zoroastrianism was a a religion that emerged out of persia prior to sort of religious Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And those religions philosophically are heavily influenced by Zoroastrianism. But one of the things that made it so interesting is that it was the first what we call dualistic religion, which is to say that rather than being a monotheistic religion, so it kind of predates monotheism, Zoroastrians believed essentially that there were two equal and opposite forces in the world, like a good force and a bad force. And there was like a good god and a bad god. And the, the challenge of humanity was to find their way to the good and embrace the good side of things. But it recognized that there was this sort of balance of good and evil. And that comes probably from 
Eastern philosophies, especially in Taoism, and the idea of the yin and the yang, that you can't have light without dark, you can't have male without female, that you need a sort of intermingling of the elements of existence to make something work. And so Trinity, in this sense, is kind of kind of a, a yin and a yang expression, but also so too is definitely the relationship between Neo and Smith, where they basically are each other in some kind of real way. They're as direct opposite to each other as possible, but that's the heart of what's playing out for everything else happening in the story, is that relationship between Neo and Smith. Uh, and that's something we're going to get into in a very, very big way in the next two movies. It's Absolutely, not really played right. up yeah. here as no, much, because no. for as important as Smith is, like, Smith is, you know, based on what you just said, it makes sense that Smith, along with Neo, is the most important character in this whole thing. You know, it's weird how, like, a sort of unimportant he is in this first movie. He's only in a handful of scenes. He's great in it, but it's weird how he goes from just being kind of the head bad guy and a bunch of nameless sort of drone guys to being the ultimate incarnation of evil and everything that opposes what Neo stands for. Yeah, and and again, I think that's partly because of the presence of Neo makes Smith more evil and more powerful, right? In other words, like, uh, before Neo was there, Smith's power was limited by the fact that he had no opposing force. Once he gets that opposing force, his influence and power escalates in the opposite direction, completely in proximity and as a, as a direct ratio of Neo's balance or Neo's force going in the opposite direction towards liberation and freedom and goodness and humanity. So I think that's deliberate. Like, Smith becomes more powerful because of Neo. And again, that is something that is consistent with a lot of the religious themes and ideas that they've been borrowing from. But again, right, it becomes a lot more significant in the next movie, so so we'll certainly deal with it more when we talk about Reloaded. The Smith character in this watching it this time reminded me of something I felt watching it after the first few times, is that the programs in the matrix kind of come off more human than the humans at times like if you notice the humans kind of move like robots and then you have the the oracle and you have smith and you know we'll get to the oracle but since we're talking about smith when he gives his speech at the end you know about humanity and how much he's grown to hate them and how it makes him feel things and that's what he doesn't like because he's a program and he doesn't want to be he doesn't want these emotions but it's (laughs) it's great because it just reminds you that these aren't just robots they're artificial intelligence you know they have feelings and emotions and thoughts and it's more complex than that too and i kind of forget that because most of the movie he is just a terminator or a man in black and then it's the point where he takes off at his earplug and talks to morpheus trying to get the codes to zion and he's like you know I, this is a prison for me too i'm stuck with you humans yeah. i just he doesn't <laughs> yeah, even want to you're exist a, you're a vermin anymore. right you're you're a disease yeah that's that's a great that's a great scene i hate this place, this zoo, this prison, this reality, whatever you want to call it, I can't stand it any longer. It's the smell. If there is such a thing, I feel saturated by it. I can taste your stink. Every time I do, I fear that I've somehow been infected by it. It's repulsive, isn't it? I must get out of here. I must get free. And in this mind is the key, my key. Once Zion is destroyed, there is no need for me to be here. Do you understand? I need the codes. I have to get inside Zion. 
you have to tell me how you're going to tell me or you're going to die. My time's somewhat limited, but let's talk about the Oracle as well, because this is one of those things. So there's a couple things I, I got to get off my chest that are annoying to me in terms of the way that it's written. So one is that, and again, this is a nod to sort of the way that Buddhist monasteries work. We see this sort of with the Jedi as well, where Morpheus tells Neo that he's sorry that he got him out so late, and they try and get him young so that they're not so attached to right their false reality. And then, like, I think in, like the next scene, or very, very shortly thereafter, you find out that Cipher has been freed from the Matrix for like ten years. <laughs> so that means like he was like thirty-five when he at least right when he was taken out of the Matrix. So like that doesn't seem consistent. And the other thing is that did you notice that Tank makes a lot of pop culture references. He exists in like 200 years from now. He's never been inside the Matrix, I don't think. Like, there's no reason that he would... Yeah, he says like, fasten your seatbelt, no, the smoking sign has gone off, like whatever, like the airplane announcement. He says, Mikey, I think he likes it, which is a reference to like Life <laughs> Serial. I'm like, come on. I mean, he's the one guy who shouldn't be able to make pop culture references. It's explicit that he was born outside of the Matrix, that he really is from 2199 hey, you, or whatever. you don't you know, know what the design on VHS collection is like. They, they might have like four movies and a life commercial. Like, right, and, never, and, that, and that's oh, where you have to go to explain that plot hole. <laughs> Can you imagine the blockbuster movie. video program they wrote themselves oh at Zion God. to just watch every movie right. ever? I guess Tank can't do it because he's a human, but you know how they teach Keanu and who I guess ostensibly everybody kung fu and jujitsu and everything they could have like one disc with like every film ever just like oh now I know everything about every film but like <laughs> right. Tank can't do that because Tank doesn't have a plug so right. maybe he just has installed it on so many people that by osmosis he's able to like pick up pop culture references I don't anyway know. that's that's my annoyance with the writing but anyway so I, I think one of the better written scenes is the the Oracle scene I think it's great one thing that I I'm con- always confused by is the potentials who by the way, Neo gets to skip the line if you haven't never noticed that. <laughs> They've all been like sitting there for hours, and then he gets in like two minutes later, like, "Yeah, we're ready for you now," which seems kind of dickish. But are they unplugged? Like, that's really that doesn't make any sense. Whatever. My thoughts there is that they aren't. Is that they are, have been told and accept the truth about the Matrix and are learning how to manipulate it, but that right. they haven't been unplugged yet. But that that does raise a good question. Now they should, for all intent and purpose, only be there if they are unplugged right. and. <laughs> Well, so one of two things there. Number one, it could be like what Mike said earlier that like Choi and DeJour, that they're part of this program that sort of guides Neo in the right way, potentially. Mm, Or number two, in the third movie, we meet Sati, and Sati is, I don't think she's unplugged, and she is... No, she is an actual program, yeah. She's she's all-knowing, you know what I mean? So it it could be that as well. Maybe they're program children that are there in exile. That comes into play later. Maybe they're not online. Maybe they're just hanging out. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Oh, one thing okay. I do want to say, if we're, if we're jumping around a little bit, one thing I do yeah. want to say is that when Neo is unplugged and they finally put him in and they bring him to the construct, and Morpheus talks about how the plugs in your arms and neck are gone, you know, this is your residual self-image. This is the construct. It's our loading program. We can load anything from clothing to equipment, weapons, training simulations anything we need right now we're inside a computer program is it really so hard to believe your clothes are different the plugs in your arms and head are gone your hair has changed your appearance now is what we call residual self-image it is the mental projection of your digital self this isn't real what is real how do you define real 
If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. I realized that my residual self-image of Keanu is Keanu in the Matrix. So, like, whenever I see him in another movie, like, I see him with long hair and John Wick, I'm like, that's not Keanu. Like, I guess uh-huh. it is, but, uh-huh. like, when I think of Keanu, I think of him in this. And I guess that's true of everybody. Like, if you think of an actor, you're probably thinking of that person in a specific movie or an era. For me, because this was, like, the first... Maybe the first Keanu movie I ever saw, the first R-rated movie I ever saw, you know, my favorite movie of all time. When I think of him, I think of him in this. And so if he doesn't look like this, I'm like, I don't know how to react. Although Keanu Reeves is notably resistant to aging anyway, so, you know, there there is that. Like, he's in his 50s now, and he still basically looks like that. It's sort of terrifying. So the Oracle scene, I want to make sure we get this in. The Oracle scene is certainly one of the best in the movie, and I, it, it's one of those ones where it's like, it's definitely an exposition philosophy 101 moment, but it also, but she like... she sells it. She sells it. She really does. And it's and it's so cleverly done in that like she's just this woman smoking a cigarette in a kitchen baking cookies because as a viewer you again are living what Neo's living which is that like you're you're seeing something completely unexpected that sort of takes you off guard and so what I think is so clever about the scene is not only is it unexpected for Neo it's unexpected for us it's one of those great moments where we really are totally in it and what he's hearing then is we doubt it as much as he does because of the way that scene is constructed right so it's really important for us to not be certain as to what we think about what the oracle is saying like that's really important for us watching the movie and having our own interpretation of it the only way to really do that is to kind of do it in a way that knocks us off guard and i think that's what's so brilliant and clever about that scene is the wachowskis were smart enough to realize in order to sell this this has to be something where the viewers experience it the same way the character does. It almost feels like a misdirect, too, because right. she's spouting all of this philosophy about him and know yourself and this right. and that and everything else. And you're expecting her message to be somewhere in there. But ultimately, all she says is it's going to come to a point where either you're going to die or Morpheus is going to die. And that's your choice. Like, it's very clear cut what the Oracle ends up telling him about his future, you know? And so I found that very interesting in how the scene was crafted. But then she also tells him that you don't believe what I'm saying, so it doesn't matter. So there's an element of it where it's not that she's necessarily lying to him, but that she's telling him what he believes. That that he deep down believes he's not the one, and that he has to believe he's not the one or he's never gonna be, right? In other words, like, he has to have that doubt or else he's never going to really come into himself. It has to be his own choice. I don't think it's necessarily... I mean, a lot of people who criticized it kind of say, like, well, it doesn't really make any sense that she would tell it to him this way. I think it makes perfect sense that she tells it to him this way, and I think it makes sense because of the way that it ends up when she basically, at the end, is like, have a cookie, you're going to forget about all this, you don't really care, you don't believe in fate anyway, <laughs> right? Like, that is what she's telling him. Like, that's what the prophecy really is, that she's, she's revealing to him everything he needs to know and not just giving him a blank yes you're the one go forth and go be the one which would serve no purpose it would sort of confuse him more like if she just like yeah you're the one like go do it like what would you what would you do with that information yeah what i also really like about the scene is that it's just so funny like it the, is. The, yeah. the, the best line in the movie is i can see why she likes you yeah. and he says yeah. who well, not too bright though not like, too bright it's though just, <laughs> it's so so perfect you're cuter than i thought I can see why she likes you. Who? Not too bright, though. It's yeah, it's really exact, good. It's everything that I want. You know, Neo tries to explain to Morpheus what the Oracle says to him, and he says, she told you exactly what you needed to hear, yep. which 
is like she's basically the only one that tells him what he's thinking is what he's saying is like you're not the one and everyone else around him is saying you are the one or you might be the one and this and that and so I think it's just like this sense of relief to a yeah. degree where someone out there has the same point of view or will, is willing to just agree with him even if it's just to placate him for the moment to get him you know to the next step now I'm supposed to say hmm that's interesting but then you say but what but you already know what I'm going to tell you I'm not the one. Sorry, kid. You got the gift. But it looks like you're waiting for something. What? Your next life, maybe. Who knows? Is there anything else about like other scenes in this movie that you want to make sure you cover before you sign off? I could pick apart every tiny little bit and and be like, this is what this comes from. And you know, I, there's there's one one of the things that really I have to kind of have a mea, mea culpa. One of the things that always drove me insane until I really started studying Zen Buddhism is I always hated the line that Morpheus repeats, which is, "I can show you the door, but you have to walk through." I'm like, come on, just like what? It, it always felt very sort of silly sophomore level philosophy paper kind of nonsense. The whole "I can show you the door, but you have to walk through it. I came to realize, actually, that that line is almost a direct adaptation of a classic kind of Zen lesson, which is that someone asks the Zen master, how do I get to the moon, right? And the Zen master points at the moon and is like, there. (laughs) That's how you get to the moon. And the lesson being that the way to get to the moon is to go to the moon. There is no way of telling someone, you know, how to get somewhere or how to do something. And there's a couple references to that Zen idea that things have to be experienced to be known. Like when he says, the other one that drove me nuts, which is also a Zen, turns out a, a Zen philosophy, is during the Alice in Wonderland scene, the two pills, where he says, unfortunately, nobody can be told what the Matrix is. Like, well, you can. Like, you can totally tell me what it is, right? Because like, he takes the pill and he explains it. Like, the next scene is like, <laughs> exactly. this is what the Matrix is. But the point being that, like, just telling you, like, what he's trying to say is, like, just telling you doesn't really tell you what it is. You have to actually ex- experience it and, more to the point, accept it in order to understand it. And it's the experiencing and accepting that human beings seem to find to have the most difficulty with. Quick question for you. Going back to your first point about I can show you the door, but you have to walk through it. It's more of a literal application. I wonder if this is the same thing, what I'm asking. It's not necessarily what it means, but actually literally. But in the sequels, we have the Keymaker. Right. And he has all the doors. (laughs) And, you know, like Seraph is like, like Seraph and the Keymaker are both like, hey, here's a bunch of doors. Like, I can't be the one that goes through it. Is that the same kind of thing? Like, they're kind of guides, right? Like, it's similar-ish, right? Yeah, but it's like next level stuff, right? (laughs) It is. I mean, it's it's a a senior level course. Right. Well, it goes from, so, again, this is more sort of deeper level theology nerd stuff, but we basically talk about religion in two different ways. We talk about the way that like individuals practice religion, and then we talk about what's called mysticism. And mysticism is like the level two of religion that most people don't practice. Most people adhere to a religion, follow its tenets, follow its doctrines, believe in its theology and its cosmology, and like that's how it fits into their lives. Mystics are people who like fully, it's, it's their whole life is the religion. So they immerse themselves in the next level, right? So like a Catholic monk is a mystic or like, you know, Jesus would have been a mystic. Jewish Kabbalah is mysticism. It's, it's immersive. It's a deeper understanding of it. So I think what the reason they keep that sort of door imagery as the story progresses is because it's showing us of Neo 
having his sort of indoctrination into a belief system in the first part, and then his immersion into a mysticism, a sort of gut-level understanding of things that can't be put into words as the story progresses. So I think you're right to note the door imagery, right, as having multiple levels that get richer and deeper as Neo sort of falls further into the rabbit hole, especially leading up to the architect scene that is my favorite scene in any of the movies, which we'll we'll talk about in a couple weeks. But yeah, I don't want to I don't go too far into that because <laughs> that one is uh, we could do a whole episode just about that one scene. I think. Mike, any last burning questions before we let John go? Actually, one thing that just struck me this time because I was trying to extrapolate anything about religion this time around, as far as like the Matrix source code itself that we see you know yeah. is there any kind of relation to how like isn't there something where numbers equal letters in the kabbalah or anything like that do you see any relation between this and that brilliant insight i've never thought about it before and uh, i'm sure you're onto something there i know too little about kabbalah i know that they threw a lot of kabbalah into this as well it's part of the blender the correlation between numbers and letters in hebrew script as it is part of Kabbalah interpretation, I'm sure, is part of it. I'm also sure that the I Ching, which is a very similar kind of Chinese religious text that's all about prophecy, and the I Ching is all about how the individual reads the I Ching, and so like it's it, it like changes every time you read it. The series, The Man in the High Castle, is based around a lot of that idea of the I Ching. If you guys have seen it yet, I don't know, but yeah, so so the uh, the Japanese minister reads the I Ching all the time, and and he is crucial to understanding the plot of that series. But no, I'm sure you're right that there's there's an element of both Kabbalah and and I Ching with the with the Matrix source code, as you know, when Cipher is talking about he doesn't see the code, he sees what Long the code redhead represents redhead. now. Right? It's almost it's that's I think that's a, a direct nod to um, that kind of religious practice of reading texts for beyond what just they say but what they represent symbolically not just in like a mythological kind of way but in like a this doesn't say what you think it says it can be read this way kind of way so that's that's, honestly had never even thought about the way that those play into it because there's just so much stuff (laughs) in the matrix uh it's a great insight uh thanks for bringing it up well look at that the student has become the teacher look at Uh you yeah Thank you, John. Thank you very much for stopping by and joining us for The Matrix. You'll be back in, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, like six-ish weeks or so. And you'll be back three episodes in a row for The Animatrix, Reloaded, Enter the Matrix, and Revolutions. And then Constantine's in there somewhere, right? Constantine's after those. Okay, great. It's going to be. A few few weeks later. But yeah, lots of John coming back, coming up. Thank you. We will take a quick break on this episode, and we will come back and stick around for more Keanu Club. we're back so now that the religion component has been handled not in its entirety i mean like this is like we were talking about before there's so much you can talk about but 
one thing that I feel like we lose a little bit, and it's not a bad thing because I do think that the episodes that we have with John are the most interesting episodes we have because we're actually learning things. And I feel like we're actually creating something kind of interesting and compelling. But one thing that we kind of lose a little bit is how the movies work as movies and especially the Keanu connections, the Keanu connections to the rest of the films. I don't know if there's necessarily a ton of those here. I didn't necessarily watch it for that in that regard, there is a lot to talk about here in terms of where this ranks, where it is historically as, you know, a sci-fi movie, an action movie. This caps off a decade where Keanu was in Point Break and Speed, and so he didn't have that cage three action movies in a row that he had with The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off, but he has three amazing action movies in the 90s, and it's worth talking about that, not just The Matrix as religion, but The Matrix as an action movie, as a movie, as popcorn entertainment as Keanu Club, etc. That's funny. I never considered that he does have an action trilogy. You know, it doesn't have to be all in a row like that, but that's cool. I, I just Point Break, Speed, and The Matrix. Is that stronger than the Cage trilogy? Or what are you oh, thinking? I God. mean, they, that is a formidable match right there, wouldn't so you say? So now, I'm trying to think, if I have to rank them favorite to least favorite because I, I still don't know how to do best I don't I'm not interested in best if we were doing favorite to least favorite number one would be the matrix I think number six would be speed I know that we ranked these when we did cage club I remember we ranked those three I don't remember what my order was I think five would be con air four would be point break maybe three would be the rock two would be face-off, which means that we would have 1, 4, and 6 would be Keanu, which is 11 points, and 2, 3, and 5 would be Cage, which is 10 points. So technically, I guess, I like Cage's a little bit more, but I mean, there's six movies that I love. Yeah, it's a tough call, indeed. I I think what's interesting is that he doesn't, Keanu, that is, doesn't have like it's it's all him for the most part like okay there's Swayze there's Sandra Bullock and Dennis Hopper and in this there's Lawrence Fishburne but it's not like and Carrie Ann Moss let's this... not forget about the mom no yeah and Carrie Ann Moss she wasn't this <laughs> made her a star but I mean I just don't get the sense that he's the sidekick as much as Cage is like he doesn't like that's what's interesting to me is his action movies seem to revolve around him a little more but then the cage ones i do feel are a bit stronger displays of just all-out action like they they never get intellectual on the level of the matrix you know like they just go all out for action well in terms of so in terms of action stars in terms of leads in terms of action movies i guess we could say that keanu is more like someone that we're going to be spending a lot of time with tomorrow in Sylvester Stallone, that when it's the Stallone movie, like, it's a Stallone movie, until he becomes 70 years old and he sort of passes the baton to Michael B. Jordan in Creed, you know, a Rocky movie is Rocky. Like, you know, there is Ivan Drago, there is whoever he's fighting, you have Apollo Creed, you have all these different guys who, they're there with him, but, like, it's a Rocky movie. Just like Speed is a Keanu movie, or Point Break is a Keanu movie. Whereas in Con Air, Cage is kind of the straight guy in a world of Although, I guess it's kind of like The Matrix, sort of, right? Like, Cage is kind of our conduit in Con Air, like Keanu is here, that Cage is never going to be, I don't think, just like John was saying earlier, Cage might never be somebody's favorite character in Con Air, but he's kind of, he has to be that way, because he's the only sort of semblance of normality in this crazy heightened world. Yeah, and I also think that he's more comfortable as an actor to step back a little bit, and just, I think he's also, we said, 
Cage is a bit stronger than Keanu as an actor in that he doesn't really need to crowd the screen quite as much, right? He can do a lot more by doing a lot less. So it's just interesting. I just wanted your thoughts on that since we were just exploring the action side. Well, I'm going to put your feet to the fire because I just had to rank them. Favorite to least favorite. I mean, Matrix... Just as an all-around movie and action film, I just, you know, the revolutionary special effects just work so well to just elevate action to the next level. Then I'm coming close to you. I'm coming close. I'm going to say face-off, Yep. but then I go rock. That's what I did, yep. Then I go, okay, and then point break. Yep. <laughs> I think, oh my gosh, we're going to uh-huh. have the same exact thing. And then I go back to cage with yep. Con Air. Same, okay, same and six, then, yep. And then... Okay, and then I end up back with Keanu and Speed. Interesting, but it's it's a tough one down there. I feel like Con Air and Speed, which we discussed on the Speed episode, are kind of sister films in a way. Like, one's on a plane, one's on a bus. It's kind of the same thing. But yeah, you know, I, and that's not to say and if you, you what, know, what is what is better weird, than others. Just real quick, is that if you combine them both as like five and a half, then they both become ten and a half point movies. So like, then in that regard, they're basically the same. You know, because like, I was ranking them in terms of. So if you see that the same movie, they're sort of tied for fifth. Then we like them both the same, which is kind of it's crazy. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, the 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 other thing though is and this is really getting off tangent from The Matrix, is looking at what else they did in the 90s. And Keanu has The Devil's Advocate, which is great. Last Time I Committed Suicide, which barf. Feeling Minnesota, which barf. <laughs> Chain Reaction, A Walk in the Clouds, Johnny Mnemonic, Little Buddha, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, Freaked. Like, there's stuff early in the 90s that was good, that, you know, much, much Ado About Nothing, Dracula, My Own Private Idaho. But then you look at Cage and you see, like, he won an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas, and he was Little Junior in Kiss of Death, and he was in It Could Happen to You, and he was in Deadfall, and he was in Red Rock West, and it's... I think Cage had better 90s, but in terms of these three, it's close. It's close. One more question for you. Now add in the three Transformers movies. Where, where would they go? Oh my just god. Kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's just interesting how they each ended up with these three extremely solid action films not just action films though because like they're really great movies on their own too i mean i think i think some of them could work with other actors and uh, not necessarily the matrix you know not necessarily face off obviously you can't do face off with other actors I don't even think, though we but, went uh, through and we did face off we looked at all the other people that they thought about doing and like just yeah. insanity but yeah go ahead but it's funny how they do like i, I mean even going into this whole thing i thought they were going to chart a lot closer and they don't except for that one genre you know like they couldn't really be more different during this time and yet they each emerge from the 90s with three really solid blockbusters what would you say so like keanu's fourth action movie would be john wick what would you think cages would be would it be wind talkers oh man i guess so it's not really Drive angry or it Ghost doesn't Rider wanna... or i mean Keanu, like the, no, the farther to... down the deeper into the action well you go i think the better keanu looks maybe at least in number four I don't think that Cage has another action movie as good as John Wick. Hmm. Yeah, no, like, I feel like he never fully returned to that scene again. I mean, you could kind of say National Treasure is an action movie. You know, it's kind of a family, family action adventure, film, maybe. you know. Yeah, adventure kind of thing. Kick-Ass is kind of an action movie, but again, he's not really in that very much. I dare say Stolen is kind of an action <laughs> movie, but it sucks. It's just a guilty pleasure. 
what other thing the one when he was with Hayden Christensen outcast you know like there he has done he has like sort of touched upon action but I don't feel like he ever fully embraced it again like John he Wick did level, you know yeah. yeah like John Wick level like you have yeah that is unequivocally an action film whereas you know next you know there's action in it but it's more of like a sci-fi thriller kind of thing even like Gone in sixty seconds, like that's an action movie, but it kind of isn't but an no, action. Like, movie. I was, it's like a I was talking film. to people about that recently, and I was like, it's not a good movie because if you remember, there's like twenty great minutes, and the rest of it just like, all right, we're gonna plan for this heist, and then the heist is like so short. Yeah, it's it's shot like an action film, but nothing happens. Is I think what ended up with that film. Oh, I'm looking at my notes now about the Matrix. Getting back to the Matrix, and there's that scene where. Keanu first sees, or Neo first sees the woman in the red dress, and Morpheus is like, you know, you see doctors, lawyers, carpenters, and I was like, carpenters? So we gotta make sure that when John comes back for the Reloaded, if he thinks that, like, carpenters, because Jesus was a carpenter, because that's a very specific job title to be put in there. And that's funny, too, because I wanted to say earlier that although this film is laced with references, and, you know, none of, and some of them seem seem obvious in hindsight but at the time i was amazed like how well things are kind of hidden in this film not hidden but like uh, not in your face yeah they're not in your face so it is kind of funny that they would throw one in there and maybe catch you off guard to say carpenter flat out like that so here's a a question for you this might be i don't know if this is a philosophical question or not but if you were unplugged tomorrow and you found out that everything that you had, like all what you thought were your memories, were essentially not real. Which I also here that's another that's a side question before we get into the bigger question. He says that like you know all these memories, or I think Cipher says like all these memories, they didn't exist, but like they do because like memories, like it's not like you're really there's nothing physical to them. You're just remembering something that happened. Like you could have memories of dreams, right? Like so, do you think that like if you're just a body in a tube, if you're a battery? And you are being, you know, you're essentially plugged into this computer program and you think you're living life, but you're not. You wake up, you're unplugged and you go to the real world. I would still consider those memories. Or do you think that they're not memories because they actually didn't happen? I would consider them memories, but they're not really your memories because it's a it's not a real life. Like it's the life that the Matrix provided for you, right? So it's one that the machines wrote you into. So your potential can only go so far there and you're not in control of of anything really. So, you know, if you think about having an experience, so like say say Neo has a memory of like a seventh birthday. Let's just take Johnny Mnemonic for a second. Let's say he had a seventh birthday and he got a red tricycle, right? He never really did get that tricycle and that experience was manufactured by the Matrix itself. So I think that's what they're getting at when they're saying like it can't tell you who you really are because at your core you haven't even begun to find yourself yet like yeah like you're now that you've woken up you have those memories of a of your previous life but you can't really rely on them because they're a lie so i mean they're real in a sense but also in another sense like they aren't he can only have the experience the matrix allows him to so once he's unplugged those experiences and those memories are true and real and i feel like that is what forges him as a person from then on so then as a follow-up to that or the bigger question i was getting to is that if you were unplugged tomorrow would you be pissed or would you be happy i think it would take a couple stages of (laughs) like the five like the five stages of grief 
Right. Yeah. I, I honestly, like, I think I, I ultimately like it would take some. It would take for me. I know I would take some getting used to. I I'd have to come to grips with it for sure. But in the end, you know, I believe it would be the right decision. I would stay unplugged, especially if you're safe in Zion and you have your plugs and you can experience VR yeah, the best, the best like, on a ship yeah. anytime. Yeah, like you can do anything. It- and not only that, but like you go back in and you're a god. Like you can do whatever. Yeah, like that's the thing too. You can become an agent for Zion and go into the Matrix with like leather jackets on and free other people and fly around the world and everything. So, uh, so you would you would be more like Neo than Cipher. I, I, w- I would like to think that I would be. What I think is really funny about Cypher is when he's, you know, eating that steak and drinking that red wine with Agent Smith, he's like, I want to be someone important, like an actor. Like, like all the things you can be and you want to be an actor. Like, I, I think that's got to just be like a joke at maybe not at his expense, but just like, I can't think. It's just, it's just so silly. I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth... The Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. Then we have a deal. I don't want to remember nothing. Nothing. You understand? And I want to be rich. You know, someone important. Like an actor. Whatever you want, Mr. Regan. Okay. You get my body back in a power plant. Reinsert me into the Matrix. I'll get you what you want. Access codes to the Zion mainframe. No, I told you I don't know them. I can get you the man who does. Morpheus. He's a complex guy to me because how would you even know what you did if you can't remember it, right? Like, he says he doesn't want to remember anything. And then it's like, well, then what is it? How are you really going to enjoy yourself if you don't realize you sort of pulled off a scheme to get this? Or You know, like, it just seems kind of weird that he doesn't want to... I hear where he's coming from, I guess. You don't want to remember the horror and all that kind of thing. But it just feels like to, to fully appreciate, like, what you've earned, you would want to know how you got it. But I didn't ever get the sense that the machines were going to plug him back in anyway. He was just going to get murdered. <laughs> okay, so I do have a question about Cypher, though. And it's why would he be so freaked out about a car accident? Like, that's what always confuses me. Oh, that was manufactured by the agents so that he could find an exit and kill people on the Nebuchadnezzar. You know, no, no, part no, of the I, deal I understand, was... I understand that, but, like, yeah. so he... You know, he is, like we were saying, he comes back into the Matrix as an avatar, and I know that he wants to get out, that the agents manufacture that, so he'd go out, unplug Apoc and Switch, unplug Neo and Trinity and kill Tank and Dozer, and then he was going to be brought back in by the agents and sort of, you know, memory wiped. But in my mind, like, my question is, why would he be so concerned if he was, like, if he was trying to, like, if he had nothing to do with the agents, why would he be so concerned about that? Like, why does Tank, like, oh, I gotta get you out of there, like a car accident? Like, no, you know what I mean? Like, that's what sort of confuses me. Like, I understand why that happened, but I just don't buy that as, like, a, 
oh, there's a go- goddamn car accident. Like, I got to get out of here. I don't understand why Tank's like, oh, yeah, a car accident. Like, let's get you out of there. Like, there's way crazier, more dangerous stuff going on than a car accident that you weren't even involved in. Well, I think Tank knows that they're being pursued by the agents. And I also feel like Cypher has been losing his cool ever since they've re-entered the Matrix to see the Oracle. Like, he kind of is, um, like, when Neo comes back, he gives him, like, that look where he's, like, smiling, and Neo looks at him like, what's what's with you? And so I feel like when he separates from the core team to find his own exit, like, he's just playing up the danger. I don't know. I got the sense that he was just sort of trying to oversell it at that moment just to get himself out quickly. Because Tank is, like, later when Trinity... He doesn't even say, I'm with Trinity and Neo, but Tank later is like, aren't you with Cypher? And he was like, it was weird, like, when I was talking to him. They're in a world where there's agents running around, you know, and they just were in a building that got deja vu and that they changed the coding of the Matrix and, you know, he escaped and they were literally face to face with agents. And I understand that, like, you know, Morpheus has been captured. They want to get everybody out of there. But he's just like, oh, no, there's a car accident. You gotta get me out of here. That's like the one thing about this movie that I don't really fully buy. Yeah, one thing I had problems with for a while, but don't anymore because there's really no other way to have this scene is when he's having his conversation with Agent Smith in the Matrix. And, you know, that's when Neo sort of interrupts that, right? Neo comes up and is like, hey, I can't sleep. And he gives him the giggle juice and they have a a drink together. Oh, Um, is it? Yeah. And then when Neo leaves, yeah, he like turns off a couple things and he's like, that's the Matrix. I'm looking at it. I just see like a girl like this. Yeah, and then when Neo leaves, it goes, like, it zooms in on the screen of the Matrix code, and then it cuts to Cypher eating the steak. Oh, and wow. so for Yeah, so for a long time, I was like, how did he plug himself into the Matrix? But no, the idea is just, like, we are looking through the code in the and way that... And talking to him through the code. Yeah, exactly, and this is how he would see it program through the matrix i never like i get i never really thought about that scene because like he gets scared he's like whoa you scared the bejesus out of me but like i never thought why like what he would be up to like i guess it's just one of those things where it's just like oh that's the scene like all right mm-hmm. yeah because i mean it's funny now like just watching it so many times i'm picking up like one of the first things is cypher saying to trinity like you took my watch like what are you doing in this and then like so that Trinity wasn't even supposed to be watching Neo and then there is this uh, when when she escapes in the beginning through the phone booth the agents say the informant is real and like these are things that just I glossed over in earlier viewings but now knowing that Cypher is the traitor it's interesting how these things are, are right there right at the beginning we talked about the Oracle scene. I did want to mention that, like, when she's like, don't worry about the vase, he's like, what vase? What's she say? What's really going to cook your noodles later is, would you still have broken if I hadn't said anything? And, like, that's just, like, I don't know how to react to that. Like, that's, that's crazy. I'd ask you to sit down, but you're not going to anyway. And don't worry about the vase. What vase? That vase. I'm sorry. I said don't worry about it. I'll get one of my kids to fix it. How did you know? Oh, what's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? Yeah, I didn't exactly know how to read her either. Like, I think John was saying earlier about the potentials. Like, are these children that were unplugged and are now hanging out at the Oracles? And so we will find out, you know, who and what the Oracle is in later movies. But at this time, I was like, yeah, what is she? Is she just like, are these people that are just super powerful that don't want to leave the Matrix for whatever reason? We don't know yet. Maybe they're just 
guides. Ultimately, for this movie, if this was the only movie made, I don't think it really matters. You know, I think it works well just that she's an oracle. She's a guide. That's enough for I me. also get the sense, like, in that scene that she just kind of wanted to meet him. Just be like, hey, like, this guy is going to save humanity. Like, let me just, you know, I just want to meet him. Like, I just want to say hi and, like, just, oh, I heard he's cute. Like, let me see what he looks like. What else do you want to talk about with this movie? Because I don't, I, I, I could, there's so many different ways to go, but I don't know if there's anything else really pressing that I want to talk about. But I'm, I'm willing to talk about it as long as you want to. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing I just wanted to touch on was, like, I remember even myself at the time thinking that how wholly original the concept of this sort of virtual world is, you know, but then ultimately, I'm, you know, the more I thought about it, and the more I like just kind of remembered is that like, I, you know, was fully aware of the concept of virtual reality and things like that at the time of the Matrix, but it just wasn't ever on my mind in any kind of capacity in the sense that it was like a mainstream thought that it is today necessarily. And but digging back through film history and stuff, like, I mean, not too far back, but I mean, you only really need to go as far back as, like, Tron. Like, it's funny, like, after watching The Matrix and then watching Tron, there is a lot of religious symbolism and talks of being the one and the savior and about a guy who is trapped inside a computer world and, you know, trying to meet the users and there's the whole thing about the creators. It, it's just interesting how prevalent this actually thematically is throughout sci-fi history and it's kind of cool how the matrix just in a sense reboots it reboots this story for the modern age you know and and makes it a little more coherent a couple years before the matrix there was a movie called the 13th floor which is based on a book simulacron 3 which it it's basically the matrix in the sense that humanity has created a virtual world for the sake of marketing to analyze trends but they created it so well uh, and you can sort of download your brain into an avatar and walk around in it but this world has created its own virtual world and there are like programs from that world trying to reach the real world and stuff so this the matrix itself has sort of led me back through film history and discovered these themes in other films that are definitely worth checking I out. I thought you were going to mention another film that came out right before this which is Dark City which we talked about I feel like in other because we talked about Knowing by Alex Proyas on Cage Club. We talked about iRobot on all his movies for Shia, but directed by Alex Proyas, Dark City is... I don't remember that movie exactly. I don't think it's the same story, but there's a lot of visual elements that are very similar, like sinister people like in black clothes, and that's a movie that I definitely want to revisit, but I remember when watching that, because I'd seen The Matrix so many times by the time I first watched that, I was just like, oh, there's like a lot here, but I think that goes back to what we were saying, you know, a while ago at the beginning of this podcast was that everything's a remix, like, you know, they were taking bits from other pieces, and like, you could call it like that they steal from other movies, or they, you know, they steal ideas or concepts from Tron or from the 13th floor or the way that things look from Dark City but at the end of the day it's the way that you put everything together and it works yeah and that's why I feel like this movie is a touchstone in film history I really do believe it's on that level you know you have I don't want to go all the way back but I mean just we'll start like you know it's there's like Star Wars which is huge Mm -hmm. you know the change special effects you know the industry and marketing and everything and then you have Jurassic Park and also changed effects and is sort of a commentary on marketing itself but also was very profitable in in its marketing and and then you and then you have like the Matrix and like these three films just in the past you know within those 30-40 years drastically changed the land I mean, there are other movies to note, obviously, but I mean, if I had to pick three big ones that sort of equally had like this seismic shift of the industry, it's kind of amazing that The Matrix is this good. 
Absolutely, and we will. This is sort of a spoiler alert. If you've if you've stuck around to the end of this nearly two-hour podcast or whatever it turns out to be after editing, either maybe this year or potentially next year, we're going to be doing a project where we dive back into The Matrix in terms of the films of the Wachowskis. And so I know we're doing them early on. I just don't know when that's actually going to come out. But we're going to dive back into this world in terms of the cinematography and the filmography and all that sort of stuff. So there's plenty more Matrix to discuss, not just for us and not just by us, but there's so many things, like you were saying earlier, you can go out and just explore this world. And it's worth checking out. It's worth checking out their other stuff and worth checking out the movies that Mike was mentioning and just get into it because this movie is great and I love it. And I'm glad we got to talk about it. This is why I wanted to do Keanu Club so bad. And I think we had some fun. And this is only the first of four Matrix episodes. So we got so much more Matrix to talk about. And I'm so excited. That's what I was just going to say is like, this isn't over <laughs> yet. Like, this is just the first movie in this dense, deep trilogy. So yeah, whatever we didn't get around to now, like we'll, we'll definitely explore later on. Cool. Well, for all things Keanu Club, everything leading up to the Matrix, also, for the records, what I want to point out is the day we're recording this is December 2nd, which is the day that Chain Reaction came out, which is another action movie from the 90s, which, ugh. But can you imagine watching Chain Reaction? We might have even mentioned it in that episode. And then saying three years later, he was going to be in the Matrix. Like, that's almost as crazy a jump as the Wachowskis making Bound and then going to the Matrix. Like, to see where they both were in 96 to getting here, it's crazy. I almost wondered if because like this movie no one really wanted to make it like but I, I almost wonder if because Keanu was losing cred they were able to afford him Maybe, or something yeah. I mean I know that he wasn't necessarily the first choice I actually didn't do any IMDB trivia for this because I knew we would have so many things to talk about I think at one point I remember hearing that like Johnny Depp was considered for this role which just not interested I just keep picturing him as Captain Jack Sparrow in like the world of the Matrix and I'm just like I can't I just can't like I know that he's been good in other things but I just can't deal with it with anybody other than Keanu. Just a very gender-fluid action star pirate in the world of cyber tech. So yeah, so go back and I guess you can go back and listen to Chain Reaction. That's a fun podcast episode because Tobin's on it. Go listen to that. Go listen to other Tobin episodes. Tobin's also on the episode of Knowing, which we talked about too. So I mean, this is all like Tobin action here at the end of this episode. Lots of things, lots of Tobin episodes on cageclub.me and facebook.com slash cageclub where you can find all the Keanu Club episodes, every other show on our network, all sorts of fun, free things to listen to at those two places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And saying again, Thank you for earlier, John Brooks. That was John Brooks, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club.